Good morning. If you open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll be reading verses 12 through 14. Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, writes this by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the church in Corinth and, and also to us. For our boast is this, our being Paul and the apostles, our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Will you uh, pray with me? Now, Father, we ask that you would open this, your word, to us, and open us up to your word, that we might behold the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. Please bless us to that end, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this last Thursday was a monumental day, and not just because of my stellar picks in our church staff's fantasy football draft. Uh, No, for, I'm going to risk being a little political here. For the first time in our nation's history, a mugshot of a former president was released to the public. For those who were paying attention, that was just politics as usual in our country. And the response from both the left and the right was, dominated by political motivation. And here's something that was interesting to me. Many on the left side of the political aisle celebrated and reveled in the mugshot, thinking of all the political capital that was gained for their side. In sharp contrast, many on the right celebrated and reveled in the picture thinking of all the political capital that was gained for their side. Politics in our country continues to get nastier and nastier. And just when you think that it can't possibly get worse, we're we're impressed by how low it seems anyone is willing to go. And to do so without blushing or any evidence of shame. And, And we're drug into it, whether we like it or not. Seems that you can't even shop for school supplies or a beverage or razors without making some sort of political statement. So the question for us this morning, and really the question for us all the time, how can the church, how can the church engage in worship, discipleship, and evangelism without being stained by the mire of this world? Can we be a community of people, a polis, without being political, at least in the way that politics is done, (laughs) excuse me, in a worldly sense? This is what I get for doing a political introduction. (coughs) Sorry about that. 
I'm going to have to like dip in like David to the bread and the wine here in a second. All right. Uh, so we have been going, Gresham Bible Church, we've been going through a series on our distinctives. And the distinctive for today is less is more. Less is more. And this distinctive, so I'll just read it to you. And look at Jordan bringing me water because he doesn't want me to treat as unholy what is actually holy here. Thank you. All right. I was just thirsty and I just faked the cough because I was hoping someone would serve. All right. All right. So I'll, I'll read the distinctive to you. This distinctive has implications on how we view our money and time. And just so you know, I'm not going to talk about any of that. Um, Because I've already talked to you about money already, and I don't want to do it again. Uh, We are committed to wisely stewarding the resources that God has entrusted to our care. I am going to talk about that. We are not opposed to a building, but we are opposed to saddling the church with cumbersome debt. I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Furthermore, we desire to do what is essential to our mission and are only interested in initiating new ministries that further the mission of the church. That's what we're going to spend most of our time on here. What's the big picture here? This is the the big picture. Gresham Bible Church is going to strive for alignment between the gospel, our mission, and our methods, or our means, or our manner, whatever M word you want to put in there. So we have the gospel, and then we have the mission that comes out of the gospel, and then how are we going to accomplish that mission? And we want alignment between all three of those. And of the three, the gospel is determinative. The gospel is determinative. Now, what was going on in Corinth, as we're going to see here, is is they were confused by Paul's humble manner. But Paul wants them to truly understand him, and he really believes that if they could understand him, then they might truly understand the gospel. So his main point, his hope here is this. If you understand the gospel, you will understand what faithful ministry looks like. And if you understand what faithful ministry looks like, then you're going to begin to understand the gospel. For Paul, the means, the methods, the manner by which you do gospel ministry is actually a demonstration of the gospel itself. How you do things matters. There needs to be alignment between the goal, the end, and the means. We are not Machiavellian here. We do not believe that the ends justify the means. The means have to be in alignment with the gospel itself. And so Paul hoped that the Corinthians would see this. And my hope for Gresham Bible Church is that we will be faithful to do that which Paul first modeled and then he commanded. So this morning, maybe you're here, maybe you're not a Christian, but you're curious about Jesus. For the next 30 minutes or so, I would ask you, consider whether there might be something that feels powerfully true about the way the Word of God teaches ministry is to take place. Might there be something that that resonates within you when you hear about integrity and simplicity and godly sincerity? And then how might you respond to that? For the rest of you, Christians, Please listen to how the Bible instructs us to keep the gospel, its ministries, and its methods in alignment. And I would ask you to evaluate, help us, the leadership of the church, evaluate how we're doing, how we're doing. 
and then ask yourself how you are doing in keeping that same alignment. Okay, so that's the intro. Let's look at the context here, just bring you up to speed on, on what's going on in 2 Corinthians. This, we call it 2 Corinthians. I don't want to confuse things for you, but it's probably like 4th or 5th Corinthians, actually. And 1 Corinthians isn't really 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is actually probably 2 Corinthians. There's a whole bunch of letters that Paul, that were going back and forth between Paul and the church in Corinth. And, and we have two of them, and we know that 1 Corinthians comes before 2 Corinthians, but we don't know if 1 Corinthians is actually 1 Corinthians. It might be 2. And 2 Corinthians we know comes after 1 Corinthians, but it might actually be like 3rd, 4th, or 5th Corinthians. Or maybe 6, who knows? Right? We just have these two. Is that thoroughly confusing? All right, good, perfect. So he writes to the church in Corinth for at least the second time, and, and, and in this second letter, which we call 2 Corinthians, he praises the God of all comfort, and he makes the point that God comforts them, the Corinthians, so they can then in turn comfort others. And in, in fact, because God is sovereign, everything, Paul says, everything that they were going through as apostles, they were going through it for the sake of the church in Corinth. And they had been going through a lot, Paul and the apostles, right? Just prior to writing the letter, Paul and his missionary band had been afflicted in Asia, and the persecution there apparently was so intense, Paul didn't think he was going to survive. He, he despaired of his life, we're told. But God delivered them, and Paul knew that God would continue to deliver them, but only if the Corinthians prayed. That's, this is where right before our passage, Corinthian church, he says, you, you got to pray for us. And then he says, God's going to be glorified in you as the God who answers your prayers. Now, it also appears that the Corinthians had written to Paul to level a series of questions or accusations against him following a visit and then maybe the, the, the first letter, 1 Corinthians. And, and these questions were probably motivated or encouraged by a group of visiting preachers who were trying to win the hearts and probably the pocketbooks of the Corinthians. Uh, the, 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 the accusations were things like, Paul, your, your, your letters are hard to understand. That first Corinthians, who can understand that? And then, uh, Paul, you're fickle. You, you just can't be trusted. You say you're going to come, but then you change your mind and you don't come. And and, and then, Paul, you're, you're domineering, you're, you're heavy-handed, you're, you're really brave in your letters, but then when you show up in person, you're like meek and mild. And, and, and these last two accusations were probably the hardest for Paul to hear for, for two reasons. First, uh, they couldn't have been further from the truth, and also they, they struck at the core of his integrity. So, so Paul, in our passage here, he, he reminds them of the truth. He has to remind them how he acted when he was with them. So, so here we go. The first thing Paul does is he defends his ministry and his boast. Here's his boast. Our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you, Corinthians. Now, you might think if you've read 1 Corinthians, well, Paul's boasting? Doesn't he tell the Corinthians over and over again, don't boast, don't boast, don't boast? They had a difficult time with boasting. It was leading to church splits. They had developed a bit of a personality cult or cults around different speakers. I follow Paul. I follow, I follow Apollos. Well, I'm with Peter, and then I'm, I'm with whoever the latest flavor of the month was who was going through. And Paul told them, 
don't boast in men. Don't boast in men. And, and don't boast in anything that God's given to you. <laughs> Why would you brag before God about something that he gave you? It just doesn't make any sense. But, but we know, though, from reading the Bible that, that there is a place for healthy boasting. To, because when we boast in something, we're glorying in something. We, we even find our identity in it. And, and like the prophet Jeremiah said, and I'm sure you remember this, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But if you're going to boast, let him who boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So you see, the things that you boast in, the things that you glory in, it's, it, it's that which gives you identity. And God says, really, there's only one thing worth establishing an identity around. It's that you know and understand me. You know and understand me. And so Paul came to understand that. He, he reminded the church in Philippi, in Philippians chapter 3, that, hey, look, guys, if, if anybody has religious credentials that they could boast in as a Jewish person, it would be me. And then he goes on to list all of his credentials. And then he says, but really, those are just trash. I consider them as trash in contrast with knowing Christ, knowing Christ. And then in Galatians, he reminds the church in Galatia, if I'm going to boast in anything, I want it to be this. I want to boast in Christ, that I know Christ and he knows me. And in our passage here, Paul then talks about boasting. And I think he's probably using a little bit, bit of irony there. He says that the, the boast of our ministry is this. And he says, the testimony of my conscience is this. And we might think, well, okay, so what's the conscience? If you've ever seen Pinocchio, you know that Jiminy Cricket sits on the shoulder of, of Pinocchio and tells him what's right and wrong. And we're told, always let your conscience be your guide. I think that's right. Have any of you all read the book Pinocchio before? You know that Jiminy Cricket is like squished like a, the bug that he is in like the third page of the book and he's gone for the rest of it. And it's, it's like, it's almost traumatic when you read it. And if I just spoiled it for you, I don't care, because Pinocchio's been around forever, right? It's too late. Okay, anyway, so that's not what the conscience is, not the conscience. The conscience is this incredible gift that's been given to us by God, and it's given to all people, all people, by which we critically analyze our own actions and the actions of others. And, and Paul says, I have sworn to the Corinthians, this is the testimony of my conscience. That is, I've evaluated my motives, and my conscience is clear. I have acted with godly sincerity and with simplicity. So we might think, okay, well, what is that? Godly simplicity, sincerity. Maybe synonyms would be frankness or openness, uh, transparency, integrity, innocence. He says, my, my conscience is clear. I've been above board with you. I've been open. I've been frank with you. There's no hidden agenda. Paul's, Paul's ministry was like, um, what's the acronym? WYSIWYG. What you see is what you get. Don't, don't try to dig beneath the surface for ulterior motives. You will not find any. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, just, just one chapter after our text, he contrasts himself with the accusers, those 
speakers who had come through and were, were criticizing him and raising suspicions about him. And, and, and he, says, he says this, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Paul's testimony is clear. He says, my conscience is clean. I'm not I'm not a thief. I'm not or a crook. I'm not a trickster. I'm not a hustler. I'm not a huckster. There are no dirty tricks with Paul. No hidden agenda. No ulterior selfish motives. He had acted with integrity when he was with the Corinthians in Corinth. And then when he left in his correspondence, he had done the same. More to the point, his behavior, his means, his methods, they were in perfect alignment with the gospel. So let me speak probably to, um, to a, lot, a lot of us here, elders, deacons, teachers, leaders at GBC. This is the standard by which we are to comport ourselves. When we interact with each other, can this be our testimony? I was totally truthful. I was above board. I was open. There is no hidden agenda, no guilt, no manipulation, nothing like that. Paul, the contrast goes on for him in this verse. He says that he behaved not by worldly wisdom, but by the grace of God. Now, Corinth is in the the Greco-Roman Empire. It was dominated by philosophy a reason-based approach to what is right and true. You could pick your favorite philosopher. Is it Plato or is it it Aristotle, right? Paul's Jewish brothers and sisters were committed to seeing signs and demonstrations of power as the test of what was true. And so he had written to the Corinthians earlier, in an earlier letter, 1 Corinthians 1, 17 through 25. He says this, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. Where's the one who is wise? And so he's he's looking at by worldly standards here. Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. In contrast, that Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews. What kind of demonstration of power is that? And folly or foolishness to the Gentiles. What, we can be saved by following a crucified man? But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, in our, so that was the Greco Roman world 2,000 years ago. What's our world like? Well, here in America, where we're at, the dominant philosophy is pragmatism. I don't, I don't know if you knew this, but America has not contributed an awful lot to Western philosophy, but there's one thing that we have pragmatism. We are good at what works. It's that, maybe in the past, you heard of that that American spirit, that can-do attitude, whatever. But it, it, it becomes a test for truth for us. If it works, then it must be true. 
That's the dominant philosophy that America has contributed, and it's part of the air that we breathe. It's just worked into our DNA. And then how does that exercise itself? Marketing. If it works, it will sell. And so here we are at the church. And let's face it, unless you have eyes to see, following a man crucified 2,000 years ago, seemingly helplessly tacked to a Roman cross until dead, does not seem to be the prudent path to success. And it's not as long as the measure of success is determined by the world. So this is what we're up against here at Gresham Bible. We're competing, as it were, for the affections of those outside the church hoping that they will see the wisdom of our ways and join us. And it would be very tempting to go all pragmatic at that point. But our mission is not driven by pragmatics, and it's not driven by the wisdom of this world. We are not going to market the gospel. We're just not. Both our mission and our means will be determined by the gospel More on that in a moment. Let's move on to verse 13. Paul's behavior is consistent with his writing. And verse 13 is really kind of, it's kind of complicated. He says this, We're not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand. Now, why would he say that? It seems that he's responding to criticism that had been leveled against him that he heard about, maybe in a letter that the Corinthians wrote back to him, saying, we don't understand what you're saying. Your stuff is too hard, too hard, and it's confusing. But Paul's message to the Corinthians was not complicated. See, Paul didn't come with some sort of Gnostic message that was dependent upon secret information or a decoder ring or magic goggles or something like that in order to understand. His letters were a reflection of the gospel. And in Christian theology, we rightly confess, and we affirm that God is omniscient. We might even say God is inscrutable. We might say God is incomprehensible. But we don't mean by that that God is nonsensical. When we say that God is incomprehensible, it means we can never plumb the depths of God. We can never master God. Now, there are many things that God has not revealed to us because he's God after all, and we're not. Deuteronomy 29, Moses told the Israelites, the secret things belong to God. The the message there, you can't know them and you won't know them, but he has revealed some things to you, he said, and what he has revealed to you is for your good. It's for your good. And, and, And that's that's always true. What God chooses to reveal to us about himself and his ways is always for our good. Now, God is the creator. We are the creature. We're never going to know God exhaustively. Never. We're going to spend all of eternity learning something new about God, and it's never going to grow old. It's never going to grow old. It's going to be awesome every day, wonderful every day. But just because we can't know God exhaustively doesn't mean we can't know him truly. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've been adopted into his family, you can honestly say this, I know God. I know God. You don't know everything about him, but what you do know 
can be true. And what can be known, first and foremost for Paul, is the gospel. We want you to know we believe that God's word can be understood. And so our goal, our goal here, even in preaching and the teaching that we do every Sunday, we don't want you to walk away asking, man, where did they come up with that? Or, man, our pastors sure know a lot about ancient Near East history. Or, and then I don't even want you to be blown away by my cool illustrations or, boy, our, our, our pastors are so funny. They, we are. But, uh, but that's not what we want you to think. We want you to think this when you walk away. The Lord spoke to me today through his word. And then secondarily for me, I would love it if you walked away thinking this. I think I can read the Bible better and more faithfully now that I listen to this. As if to say, it wasn't that he said something awesome, but he, it, was, it was right there all along. It was right there in front of me all along. And it wasn't some secret thing. It's just like we all do. We're not, we don't know anything intuitively from the Bible. We're just taught things. Paul's ministry hope here is that in verse 14, just as you did partially understand us that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. So it's still kind of complicated. Here's, here's I think, the explanation. What is Paul's hope? What does he want for the Corinthians? Paul is looking forward to the last day, the great day. And on that day, he knows, he's confident that they will boast in him just as he boasts in them. That is, he knows that one day, finally, they're all going to be on the same page. They're all going to be on the same page. Now, and we know when Christ returns, sight will be perfect, understanding will be perfect. Remember 1 Corinthians 13, verse 9, the love chapter, where Paul says, we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Then he goes on to say, for now we see in the mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then when Christ returns, I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So he knows one day, Paul and the Corinthians, one day they were going to be on the same page. He just wants that day to come sooner, <laughs> sooner rather than later. He doesn't, he doesn't want to wait until the end of all things. He wants it to happen sooner for their sake. See, when, when Jesus returns, the wisdom of the Lord will be obvious to everyone. The wisdom of this world will be exposed for the fraudulent sham that it is. And as we mature in Christ, we can, we can grow in wisdom. And we can see, as it were, better and better. Paul wanted the maturity of the Corinthians, their understanding, to grow right then. Right then. Sooner rather than later. He wanted clarity of vision for them at that time. He wanted them to see the wisdom of the Lord and appreciate it for what it was, or for what it is, quicker. Paul's prayer is that they would understand that his mission and his motives were, were what they were. And, and he, he didn't want that because he was insecure. I mean, far from it. Paul, I don't, Paul didn't fear any man except Jesus, right? Paul knew, though, that once they came to understand both his message and his ministry, then they would come to understand the gospel better. And when that happened, they would understand that there will always be alignment between the gospel, the mission of the gospel, and the means or the methods 
of how you do gospel ministry. Because gospel ministry is made of the same stuff as the gospel. It's to be motivated by the same stuff as the gospel itself. We read 1 Corinthians 1 where God's wisdom is displayed in the gospel and how it runs contrary to worldly wisdom. Paul said he comported himself with simplicity. And I've just said that that flows out of the gospel. Well, how is that? Here's the simplicity of the gospel. God created mankind in his own image to represent him on earth. Humans, Adam and Eve, sinned against God, bringing corruption upon humanity, condemnation upon humanity, the curse of death upon all creation. And try as hard as humans might, due to our corrupted nature and our finitude, we are absolutely unable to reconcile ourselves before our great God. And God, of course, he has to judge because he is God, the creator. He cannot just forgive. He is righteous and just by nature. The the moral and physical fabric of the universe is held together by him. For him not to judge, for him to just say, ah, it doesn't matter. I forgive you. Without justice would, would be contrary to his character. And I don't think we want to live in a world where justice is so insignificant as that. So God himself, the eternal son of God, became a human and lived a perfect life. He inaugurated a kingdom that would be run differently than the power structures of this world. In fact, the ethics of Jesus's kingdom were so radically different than what the world was used to that everything seemed totally upside down whenever he talked about what was right and wrong. But there was something that resonated with people, that maybe Jesus wasn't the one who was upside down, but we are. It shouldn't have surprised anyone because the ethics of the kingdom that Jesus talked about, they flow from the nature of the king of the kingdom. That is, the kingdom of God is what it is because the king of the kingdom is who he is. And more than anything else, Jesus was and is a servant. Remember Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was at heart the incarnate Son of God, a servant, a servant. And that was just too different. Honestly, he was too righteous, too merciful for the world's liking. And the religious and political power structures of the day, they did what they always do to someone or something that they perceive as a threat. They destroyed it. Jesus was unjustly condemned. He executed on a Roman cross. And to the world, the threat was dispensed with. But the world did not know that all of this was God's plan. Jesus dying on the cross was not merely the unjust judgment of a corrupt system. It was simultaneously used by a holy God to satisfy his just judgment against sin. Jesus' death on the cross is reckoned by God to all those who will repent and believe the gospel. Jesus died in our place, taking our just punishment for us. He instituted a new covenant that would renew his people's corrupted nature. He rose from the dead, demonstrating the justice of the kingdom, the injustice of this world, and the power of God over sin and death. 
And he promised to return to consummate his kingdom, an eternal kingdom where people would live in mercy and kindness as we were originally designed to do. That's the gospel that you hear every single Sunday, right? But what does that tell us? The gospel is based upon sacrificial service grounded in righteousness, mercy, grace, and love. And again, we would, that shouldn't be surprising because that's who God is, and that's the way that he always acts. Sacrificial service grounded in righteousness, mercy, grace, love. So when Jesus commissioned his people to take the gospel to the nations, he commanded them to do so in a manner consistent with the gospel itself. There is no room for hypocrisy here. Sacrificial service grounded in righteousness, mercy, grace, and love. And that's why Paul, just a couple chapters later in 2 Corinthians from our text, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 2, he says, we, the apostles, and all Christians who take the gospel with them, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's words. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So what do we do with this? What does this have to do with our, with our distinctive? As a church, our mission will be directed by the gospel. This is in keeping with our third distinctive. Everyone needs the gospel, especially me. And next week, we'll talk about the Great Commission, the cost of discipleship, missions. But today, right now, before we talk about the ministries of church, I want to remind you of this. That this gospel that I just shared with you, it is not burdensome. Our call to worship today, Matthew 11, the words of Jesus, he said this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you're not a Christian, you need to know that you are so used to bearing the burden of living in this world that you might not even recognize how much you struggle under it. Or perhaps you, you know you're tired right now. And he's like, what, so you, now you want me to add being a Christian to the list? Jesus sounds like just one more thing, one more demanding guy who's going to add to my daily list. And I want you to know this, you can never add Jesus to your list. Jesus is Lord. And it might sound counterintuitive, but he will free you up because he wants all of you. He will not be added to your list. He will take your list and transform it. Jesus' invitation, I want you to know, it is not burdensome. Jesus is honest and sincere in his, inv in his invitation. He's not a bait-and-switch guy. He wants you to come to him with your eyes open 
And I would invite you to do that. Come and talk to me afterwards about how you can do that if you're not yet a Christian. For the rest of us, we need to believe that too. Jesus' invitation is not burdensome. And we in the church, we can't do some sort of bait and switch thing either. Our ministries have got to be in keeping with the ministry of the gospel. We have got to keep the main thing the main thing. And, we got, and, and if that's the case, then we might have to say no as a church to some very good things. There are a lot of good things that we could do. A lot of good things that you as individual Christians can do. And many of you might be called individually to participate in some of these good things. And we at the church may very well encourage you and help you in some ways, but that doesn't mean that we're going to make that ministry or that thing the focus of what we do here at Gresham Bible. We might not ask the congregation to join you even as we encourage you to pursue this ministry. I hope that makes some sense. See, (laughs) for me personally, I'm I'm terrified every time I get up of preaching of binding your conscience in a way that God would not have me bind it. That's way beyond my pay grade. God has the right to bind your conscience. I don't. I don't. And I think it's a form of spiritual abuse to bind your conscience to manipulate, manipulate you or to guilt you into doing something that God would not have you do. Before God, I never, ever want to do that. The elders here, we don't want to do that. So we are going to protect, we are going to protect this church as best we can from that. Second, as a church, our ministries will be shaped by the character of the gospel that ends and means alignment. We are not going to use guilt or manipulation to recruit for any of our ministries. We will try to over-communicate with you as elders, (laughs) particularly where there are questions or potential disagreements. We might make a decision that you disagree with, but you're going to know what we're thinking. You're going to know what we're thinking. And in keeping with our fourth distinctive, the way down is the way up, we will be winsome, I pray, and humble in our gospel invitations, and our disposition must be like that of Christ, a humble servant. And further, from a leadership perspective, we're going to focus our efforts, our ministries, and resources in the ministry of the gospel as given to us by Jesus Christ. Next week's sermons, all on the Great Commission, world missions, but for now, in keeping with this week's distinctive, know that our focus is going to be on you and on the unsaved. We are going to be content to disciple you. When, when Mike and I and the other people who preach here, when we prep our sermons, we are praying for you individually by name. And we're not going to seek a larger platform than that. Here's an example. GBC has a podcast. Jordan works really hard on it. It's really well done. Life Together. That's for you. It's really not for anyone else. It's for you. It has an audience, I think, of under 100 people, right? And that's okay. That's okay. And we would rather, at the church, we would rather that five more of you start listening to it, five more of you start listening to it, than 5,000 people outside the church who are members of other churches. Because it's for you. It's for you. Last week, we introduced another ministry to you, Love, Inc. And you might think, hey, you just introduced a ministry to us here from the local outreach team. How is this, like, minimalist or or simple or whatever? 
We want you to know that, that the elders, we researched that, we thought hard, we prayed about committing GBC to Love, Inc. Because of everything that, we talk, that I've talked to you about this morning. We don't want mission drift. We don't want to burden you with another ministry that's not the main thing. We know that we ask a lot of you already. And we don't want to add to your schedule. But we concluded that Love, Inc. will actually make our service to the community, our partnership with other churches, more efficient and will give greater opportunities to serve where you have been called. That was our conclusion with that. That's why we chose to to get involved with that ministry. And then finally, because we want our alignment between the gospel, our ministry, and our methods to, to be there, you are not going to see a lot of flash or pizzazz. I, I was, <laughs> we have eight distinctives. I think we actually have nine. It has something to do with like wearing plaid. I'm not sure. Um, but <laughs> it should be obvious. I mean, look at me. There's no flash. There's not a lot of pizzazz here, right? Um, Paul wrote this to the first, in his first letter to the Corinthians. He said, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul, one of the most influential writers in the history of the world. But when he looked at himself, probably based on the testimony of others, it's like, yeah, you're not all that great, right? He didn't come with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided, he said, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. See, at at GBC, we believe that what you catch people with is what you will keep them with. And if we try to attract people with entertainment and extravagant extravagant spectacles, We will have to keep getting better at entertainment and spectacles to keep you. So there's not going to be any smoke machines here, no fancy videos, no gimmicks. And why? (laughs) Because we're not any good at that. The world is really good at that. Why would we compete with the world on their own terms? That doesn't make any sense, right? We're never going to outworld the world. Why would we even want to try So in keeping with the first distinctive, we sincerely believe that the preaching of God's word, God's word faithfully taught and preached is sufficient. We believe in the Holy Spirit to convict people. We don't need to manipulate or trick. We believe in the power of the gospel motivated by love and embodied in sacrificial service. And we are going to strive for faithfulness and excellence in those things. So I know some of the young people have already left. And maybe as they're on their way down, their parents are forcing them to listen to this sermon. And for the rest of you, you are here this morning. I would say, especially those who are leaving for college, look for a church that is committed to the same sort of things. And you will be faithfully served. And some of you might think, well, of course you say that. Of course what we do, you, you're saying what we do here is the best thing because you, you're not any good at doing anything else. And if you're better at doing other things, you'd say that's the way that we are. I mean, look at us. We're meeting in a junior high cafeteria. Right? <laughs> to be clear, if the Lord chooses to give us a building, we will thankfully move. Right? We will thankfully move. We want to be ready to act on that should the Lord choose to do it. We have funds 
earmarked. We have a facilities team. We have a realtor looking. But as Josh, Josh Howith said so well, a, a facility should facilitate ministry. A, a facility is not the goal. It's just the means. It's a potential, but not necessary means. So we'll be ready, but we're not going to be distracted. And we believe that God is sovereign. He has us right now where we, he wants us to be. And a year from now, we will be where God wants us to be. I'll close with this. Paul wrote earlier to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9. He said this, Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Now we might think, well, he's just a phony. He's just being whatever it takes to manipulate someone into the kingdom. No, this is an act of sacrificial service. He didn't have to do any of those things, but he poured himself out just like his Savior and Lord did for the sake of others. He concludes in verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them and its blessings. Did you hear in that alignment between gospel ministry methods? Did you hear Paul's consistent strategy of sacrificial service grounded in righteousness, mercy, grace, and love? I think I said this last sermon, but it's just because I'm so struck by it. But when my wife and I first attended GBC, we were struck by what we immediately saw right when we walked in the doors. Evidence of sacrificial love grounded in righteousness, mercy, grace, and love. May you excel still more in this. May we excel still more in this. And may the Lord help us to be able to boast in the day of Jesus Christ. We did not preach ourselves but we preach Jesus Christ our Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Amen? Let me pray. Father, we, we're, we're, we're stunned at who you are. We're, we're, we're amazed at your kindness and your mercy, your generosity, the way that you bless, the way that you save. And we ask, Father, that you enable us to understand that more and more and that you would forgive us of times where we want to pursue good goals, gospel goals, through anything less than gospel means. We pray, Father, that you would give us wisdom and you would find us faithful to be servants of the gospel where we are aligned both with the gospel, the ministry of the gospel, and the way that we do ministry. It's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.